Hey, Jem, welcome today. I have a very special guest for you. Her name is Jessica Buchanan. And before I tell you about her, we'll start with what are you drinking? Well, I'm having a Limoncello LaCroix, kind of my good old standby. And Jess is drinking some water for our episode today. So whatever you're drinking, I hope it's tasty. So this episode has been a long time coming. I have been wanting to have Jessica Buchanan on the podcast for so long to share her story with you because it is insane. I mean, it is a crazy story. What she has overcome is incredible. So she's a teacher, a best-selling author, humanitarian speaker, and kidnapping survivor. So on October 25th, 2011, while on a routine field mission in Somalia, working as an education advisor for her non-governmental organization, Jessica was abducted at gunpoint and held for ransom by a group of Somali pirates for 93 days. Forced to live outdoors in deplorable conditions, starved and terrorized by more than two dozen gangsters, Jessica's health steadily deteriorated until, by order of President Obama, she was rescued by the elite SEAL Team 6 on January 25th, 2012. Her ordeal is detailed in her New York Times bestselling book, Impossible Odds, The Kidnapping of Jessica Buchanan and Her Dramatic Rescue by SEAL Team 6. Jessica's been named one of the 150 women who will shake the world by Newsweek, and her story has been one of the most highly viewed 60 Minutes episodes to air to date. Jessica has shared her story of overcoming impossible odds on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, The Today Show, Stephen Colbert, The Unbeatable Mind with Navy SEAL Mark Devine, and All the Wiser with Kimmy Culp, just to name a few. Jessica's story was the subject of Wondery Season 2, Against the Odds, and her TEDx Pearl Street talk, Change is Your Proof of Life, has been the foundation for which she travels the world, inspiring audiences to access the resilience of identifying their own autonomy and choice in the middle of their own life-changing event, even when they feel they are out of options. Jessica is the founder of Soul Speak Press, an imprint of Merrick Publishing, where she supports women who are ready to share their stories through memoir manifestos, books that are one part memoir, one part self-help, and one part inspiration. Soul Speak Press's inaugural book, Desert to Mountaintops, our collective journey to reclaiming our voice, an anthology of 25 inspiring women's stories, reached bestseller status in 13 categories on Amazon during its debut in January 2023. Jessica believes in giving back and so is actively committed to supporting the Navy SEAL Foundation, which works to support families of active duty and fallen SEALs as an ambassador and fundraising supporter. Jessica also acts as a family liaison volunteer for the nonprofit organization Hostage US, supporting former hostages and their families during captivity and eventual return. She is an inspiration. She is a humble, wonderful human being, and I will just let the rest speak for itself. So enjoy this conversation. Jessica Buchanan. Oh my gosh. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for being here. So I want to tell our friends, um, kind of how this came to be and how we met. I think the world is just such a fascinating place. And mm -hmm. I was told by a longtime friend of mine who had read my book. This is a few months ago. So this has been a long time in the making. I've been so excited to have this conversation with you and for you to share your story. But she commented on someone's post and was like, hey, I think you two need to meet. And then her and I connected and met. And during that conversation, she was like, hey, actually, who I think you need to meet is Jessica Buchanan. So I immediately start following you on Instagram. And what I thought was the coolest thing was you reached out and you were like, hey, thanks for the follow. Like, I love connecting with other people that are speakers and authors and, you know, are doing this kind of work and sharing their stories. And to me, like immediately I was like, you're my people because mm. in such a competitive landscape, a lot of times people are like, oh no, that might be my competition or, you know, we can't chat or be friends. And mm. 
uh, we connected and I just adored you right away. And I was like, would you ever be willing to come on drinking with gin and talk about your incredible story? So I'm so happy that this has kind of the days finally come. It's yes, come to fruition. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm excited to connect in, uh, again. This is great. Yes. And okay. So I joke all the time that like my story might not be the biggest story, but it was big to me. It took up that space in that room in my life. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about big stories, yours is incredible. I mean, mm -hmm. your story is fascinating. So can we start at kind of the point where you have this really traumatic experience and what's going on? Where are you? Can you bring us kind of back to the scene? Sure. Uh, I think before we even like set up for the scene, I think it's important and um, to give some context. I'm a, I'm actually a teacher by profession. So yes, I've been speaking and writing for the last 10 years professionally, but really in my heart, I'm a teacher. And uh, when I was finishing up my college degree, I did my student teaching at an international school in Nairobi, Kenya. And I had done some service work and uh in Sudan and so was like in love with really the idea of working and teaching in Africa and uh, was just really um, hopeful that a door would open for me and it did the student teaching position turned into a full-time teaching uh, job that launched my you know teaching career as an elementary school teacher at this international school and this was like many many lifetimes ago um, you know I'm like in my mid-20s I'm living abroad I'm starting my career and then I meet this cute guy this cute Swedish guy one night in a trashy nightclub in Nairobi and that was like 15 years ago um, and we're together now still and have two kids but um he uh, was working in Somalia and so he was living in Nairobi but working in Somalia and I thought well that's kind of cool so we ended up uh getting married a year and a half after we met and I moved up to Somalia to the northern part of Somalia with him us and a like self-declared autonomous region of Somalia called Somaliland and we were based in Hargeisa and so um I started I didn't have a job when I moved up there, which was not what people did. You don't, you typically go to a place like Hargeisa um, without a job, uh, but I did. And I figured I'm, I'm a teacher. I'll figure something out. And sure enough, you know, I did. There were people who wanted to learn English. So I just started volunteering. And then uh, before I knew it, I had a job at an uh, inter uh, international NGO, an INGO a Danish uh, organization called the Danish Demining Group. They were the mine action unit of the Danish Refugee Council. And so I became their education advisor and traveled all over East Africa and working in mine risk education, firearm safety education, conflict management education. And uh, essentially what I did was train the local staffs in, in all of the offices that we, the projects that we had started and managed in, very a lot of them were in very remote communities in in East Africa, South Sudan, Northern Uganda, uh, Kenya, all over the place. And I I trained the staff so that they could go out into the villages that we were working in and communicate the messages effectively around um, keeping kids safe and keeping community members safe. Most of the communities that we were working in were post-conflict. They, you know, just been riddled by a civil war. And, and even if it had been a couple of decades, uh, for various reasons, mines would be left over, hadn't been cleared. There'd be um, unexploded ordinances, littering grounds, kids, you know, in that part of the world. Some of them go to school and some of them are learning how to uh, herd camels and goats. And so they they'd end up maimed or blind or dead. And so that was why I was there. It's a really long story, but I feel like it's important to give that context. Um, so in October of 2011, I had been called on by my organization to go to the southern part of Somalia. So if you look at a map, Somalia looks kind of like a seven. And um, we lived up in the top and it was pretty, uh, pretty peaceful up there, you know, re relatively safe. I mean, we still traveled with armed guards. It was a different way of life. Uh, that you get used to, um, but I was being asked to go down to the bottom of the seven, just above Mogadishu, which is probably what most people are familiar with when they see Somalia on the news, um, to go to Galkayo to our field office and do the trainings and stuff. And I had canceled it twice before because I didn't feel good about it. 
And I called my colleague, who's an older Danish gentleman, Paul. And uh, the third time the training had been scheduled and said, you know, I, I still didn't feel good about it. I had this like gut feeling, you know, that something was off. And he was just like, well, you know, like if you're not going to do your job, then we'll find somebody else who will. Um, and, you know, we talked about different ways for him to bring his staff up and, and whatnot. And it just, it wasn't going to work for him. He wanted me down there. And so, you know, I love my job. It was like, I know it's not, it's not everybody's dream to be working in Somalia, but um, it definitely was mine and to be, to live and work in Africa. And so I was a little bit afraid, I think that I might lose my job, you know, like what he was saying might be true. Um, it's the same like story for, I think a lot of women who work in, you know, corporate environments, just to come like a different, more exotic locale. Um, but we're always being told all kinds of stuff and, and we're always being, um, backed into a corner and mildly threatened, passively, aggressively threatened. And so that's how I felt. And I thought, you know, at the end of the day, like, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? I'm a school teacher from Ohio. You know, people go down there and work all the time. Like, it'll be fine. Like, nothing, nothing bad's going to happen to me. But you did say but. that you had this gut <laughs> feeling and like yeah. this intuition that was telling you not to mm -hmm. go. And I want to circle back to that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what happened then is I get on a UN plane and I go down to Southern Somalia and the training was supposed to be three days long. So the first two days were, we were staying like the guest house was on top of the office. So we didn't have to go anywhere. And then, but the third day was what I was worried about because we were going to have to transit from the North office to the South office. And it's really complicated why there are two offices and I won't get into it, but for the purposes of this conversation, that was what I was worried about. <clears throat> and so the night before we were to move to the South office, um, I had gone to bed late that night and, um, you know, we had been like <clears throat> drinking wine and, you know, playing guitar and hanging out and stuff. And, um, I didn't sleep very well and I had these nightmares all night long. I just remember them like very vividly, these nightmares where somebody like pirates had scaled the walls of the compound and gotten into the guest house and they were like beating down my door, trying to drag me out of my room. And I am not like a prolific dreamer, you know, I, I, I that's like not normal for me to have something so clear and I got up um, early because the call to prayer, you know, wakes you up at daybreak. And, um, I remember getting up out of bed and I was just drenched in sweat because I had been just like wrestling all night with these nightmares, got up and I walked into the bathroom and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying out loud, like, do you want to do this? And I knew the answer was no. I did not want to leave. I didn't want to leave my room. I didn't want to leave the compound. I didn't want to go and do that training that day. Um, and as I stood there and really like wrestled with the, my knowing, my intuition, I um, did what I think, again, a lot of women do. And I pragmatized my way out of it. You know, I, I, said to myself, well, everybody's down there waiting for me. You know, what am I going to do? Say, go down and tell Paul, Hey, I had these nightmares and I'm not, I don't feel safe and I'm not, I'm not going to go and do the training for the South Southern staff. And, you know, everybody was depending on me. Everything had already been arranged. Like I just kept, you know, um, talking myself out of listening to myself. And, um, yeah, it was very, profound and very distinct act of self-abandonment. Now, I didn't know it then, of course, and it would actually take me several years to kind of figure that out. But when I walked away from myself in that mirror, it changed the trajectory of my life. That hmm. having that moment and like knowing that 
and the word that you use self abandonment. I just Mm -hmm. did an episode a couple of weeks ago on intuition and trusting our intuition. And so Mm -hmm. I love this part of your message right now, because I think, especially as women, that is something that we do. We ignore it. We don't trust our gut. We don't trust our intuition and our knowing. I think, what did you call it? You called it your knowing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I love that's another really great way to say it. And like, a lot of times people can't identify that pivotal moment, but like that was your moment. And mm-hmm. that's not even the, like, that's, that's not even getting into the story yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but that was the moment. Oh, yeah. I have goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens so, next? So I, you know, tell my intuition that, you know, F off and I go down stairs and I get in a convoy of vehicles. We get to the other office. We do our training. Everything goes well. Um, it's around three o'clock in the afternoon. We're ready to go back to the North office. And I'm like, okay, I am home free, right? Like I am ready to just like put this whole trip behind me, all of the fear and the paranoia that I was feeling. I am like, I am ready to go home. I'm going to go do my workout, have dinner, have another glass of wine, hang out and get on that UN plane tomorrow morning and get back to Hargesa with to my husband and my dog. And, um, Instead, you know, we wait for 20, 30 minutes, maybe even an hour, like our security advisor, who's a local Somali guy, a named Avni he keeps saying, okay, it's time to go. Wait, no, we got to wait. Something's, you know, and, and it's hard because there's a language barrier. So he's speaking a little bit of English. We speak a little bit of Somali. So you don't really know what's going on. You're just like waiting. And um, finally, was, a com- sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt. Mm-hmm. Was that normal behavior to do the kind of the start and the stop of the leave time? I mean, I, who knows, you know, what is normal behavior in that kind of setting too. And, you know, there, I think in areas of the world like this, you're, you're trained to look for patterns when you're, um, assessing risk and and you're taking security and 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 safety into account but he's employed by the organization to keep us safe so he kind of has the final word so mm-hmm. whatever is normal doesn't really exist as much as like he's the one in charge so he's the one i'm supposed to listen to um and so we get into this convoy of three land cruisers that comes through their arm guards in the front and arm guards in the back. And that's normal. And then Paul and I get into the middle, middle vehicle and I don't recognize the driver. He's not the same driver that had taken us in that morning, but it didn't matter. Like that could have all been just a shift thing anyway. And, um, Abner Rizak, the security advisors is, is in the seat next to me and I'm in the back and we pull through the gates and we drive for maybe like 10 minutes through town and then a car comes up around another land cruiser uh, uh, like cuts us off so we can't keep driving and splashes mud up all over the windows and the windshield because it had rained earlier in the afternoon and um, I can't see out the windows because they're all covered with mud and I just remember saying I don't know if I said it out loud or if I'm just thinking it to myself but like what a jerk who drives like that Hmm. And I, you know, I'm like not paying attention. I'm on my phone. Um, I'm, I think I'm sending a text to my husband and maybe an email and um, thinking about, you know, whatever you think about when you're leaving work and ready to get home. And, and suddenly the door is pulled open and there's a very angry man dressed in a police uniform at Amdi Rizak's side. And he pulls him out, like out of the seatbelt and slams him onto the ground and hits him in the head with a gun. And Um, crawls into the seat next to me and puts an AK-47 to my head and starts screaming at the driver to drive. And um, we just like tear off through town. This driver is like up on two wheels, slams down. He's up on two wheels. He slams down. Like it's just insane. And I'm thinking he's going to flip the car right now. We're, we're dead. Um, And then I'm also, I just have very two, basic and fundamental thoughts and and that's just this is so bad this is so bad whatever this is it's so bad I have no frame of reference for it um and then the second thing I'm thinking about is that no matter what happens like even if he were to stop and just pull over and let us walk back to the compound and just take all of our stuff like carjack us um my life has changed forever 
nothing will be nothing will ever be the same after this Mm -hmm. um and so we drive like that for hours and we stop and we change personnel we stop again we have to get into different vehicles we do this over and over again i remember at one point paul turned around i think to check on me and he um i asked him i I, like mouth to him what is happening and he just looks at me like with like he's so sorry for me because i haven't figured it out yet and he says we're being kidnapped i think oh my god (laughs) i have i don't know what to do with this i can't imagine the transition of feelings and emotions and things racing through your mind, like how you just kind of lightheartedly and flippantly were like, Oh, who who drives like that? Like what a jerk Mm -hmm. to then moments later realizing you have a gun to your head and you're being kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like a movie, right? Like if I could horror movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's like every scene in every movie, every abduction or kidnapping you've ever seen. That's what it's like. And, and I had no idea who they were, what they wanted. I didn't know where they were taking us. Um, and it just kept going on and on and on until the middle of the night. And then they finally stopped for good and forced us out of the vehicles and told us to walk out into the desert um, and it's like pitch blackout, you know, we'd driven hours and hours away from any kind of civilization. And, um, I refused to walk out and out. I, I've refused to move. And we got kind of in, into a tussle, the guy who was telling me to go. Um, and I just kept thinking like, I have no idea what's going to happen to me out there, but I can guarantee you it's not going to be good. And, um, Paul finally came over and he took my hand and he said, Jessica, you know, we have to walk. And I knew he was right. And so, you know, hand in hand, we started this like death march essentially, but I believed really genuinely in my heart of hearts. I believed I was on my way to being executed. And, um, you know, I start saying my goodbyes. I say goodbye to my husband. I say goodbye to my dad and my brother and sister. My mom had passed away the year before. And um, I call out to her. I ask her for help. I ask her to help me be dignified, help me be strong and brave. Like I somehow in the end of everything, like, I don't know. I think people think about how they're going to die. Maybe not a lot, but I think that that thought occurs to us at some point in time. And Um, it never occurred to me to think of this as the end of my life. And, um, it was definitely like that, everything flashing before my eyes as I was getting ready to, to end my life on this earth. And, you know, after 20 minutes of walking essentially out into the middle of the desert, they forced us down, they command us down on our knees. And then, um, you know, I'm like, this is it, this is it. Like, and I'm thinking like, is it going to hurt? Um, I'm 32 years old and I didn't even get a chance to have children. That was like a, like a huge regret. And, um, then I hear one of them say just one word and it's sleep. One of them says, and I'm just like shaking my head. Like, I don't, I'm too afraid to even move. Right. And, and actually what they want us to do is lay down in the dirt and go to sleep. And uh, it's interesting what your, how your body and your mind like catch up to each other. Um, Cause you would think like in those kind of circumstances, there's no way you would be able to like lay down and go to sleep. But it was like, I collapsed onto the ground. And then I think I just from the shock of it all, I think I just passed out. And I woke up a couple hours later in the dirt and um, that started 93 days of hell, essentially. Okay, so we're going to get to the 93 days. Just to, let's say that one more time, 93 days is what we're about to get into. But do you almost wonder if it was like your mind and your body just like trying to check out from that moment, like how you were able to actually lay down and go to sleep? Yeah, I think it's like, I think it must be like a self-preservation thing or like a, you know, like a fight or flight 
kind of thing, fight, flight, or freeze, I guess. Um, I definitely felt like it was primal and I couldn't stop it. Mm. And I think maybe that's probably what happens when people go into shock. Mm -hmm. And and if I had had like a cut or something, then you'd be like, oh, well, you passed out because you were losing blood. But I think I was passed out from so much adrenaline um, and just fear. Like I've never in my life this and hopefully I never will again. I have never experienced fear in, in that capacity before. It was um it was so reductive in terms of the basic of all human my humanity. Um it every part of me wanted to survive. Um and somehow I think I needed to just check out, yeah. Yeah. Because my body probably knew I was in for the fight of my life. Well, and going through something so traumatic that you have been through, one of the things I say often is you tell your story differently when you're healed. And mm. you so eloquently tell your story now. And I know it's been a long time, but how long was it for you before you could really talk about and, and share this story and, and this trauma and the shock and this craziness that you went through? I mean, you know, I started talking about it not too long after everything happened. I would say like a good year and a half, maybe two years. Um, I guess the first interview I did was a year and a half later. Yeah, it was the 60 Minutes interview, and that was like February or March of 2013. Um. I think that's just helpful for perspective for people that have been or going through something really traumatic or adverse or, or something in their life. And I think a lot of times people think like, oh, I, I should be better by now or, mm. you know, and, and so I just, I wanted to give that perspective because I think that's really helpful for people as they are going through their own, you know, yeah. difficult times. And well, and I think that there are different ways of talking about it too. Yes. You know, like if you're talking about it for ther like a, as a therapeutic for therapeutic measures, or you're talking about it in terms of like connection with someone around the grief of it, that's different. If you're asking me about how long I've been able to talk about it from a professional perspective, that's a completely different journey for me. And I would say that I've only been able to talk about this the way I talk about it now for the last maybe three or four years. And to put it in perspective that it's been 10, it's been 11 years since yeah. the kidnapping happened. So um, this is my life's journey. Like I will never, this will never be gone. It will never go away. I will never heal completely. <laughs> maybe people see that as like bad news, right? No, you know? no. I think that's yeah, also I think okay. it normalizes yeah. it. Yes. And that's really what, you know, that's a big part of my purpose, right? Is like, we all have something. And obviously your story is probably so different. So few people in the world have experienced something like you. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm so appreciative that you are willing and able to share your story, but I think it is helpful to think about, you know, how much time had to pass before you were able to do that in this sort of a setting in a, in a professional setting and working through it. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's never a, a thing as healed, but healing, right. Mm -hmm. And kind of being on that journey. So thank you for, yeah. for sharing that. Um, I hope sure. I didn't throw too much of a curveball um, no. with that kind of sidebar. <laughs> Okay, so you said this started 93 days mm -hmm. of actual hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it took a couple of weeks for us to kind of figure out that we weren't actually going to be executed anyway. Like, I, you know, we didn't know who we'd been taken by. And we, you know, in that area of the world, there's, um, you know, kind of like ISIS, they have their own version of ISIS. Um, and the, the Al-Shabaab is what it's called. And they're, you know, they're quite violent and, and um, they're Islamic extremists. And we didn't know right off the bat if that's who had us. And if that was who had us, being an American woman was not going to work in my favor. Um, I, I don't think it's ever going to work in my favor in that kind of capacity. But um, once we kind of realized, oh, I think these are just gangsters and they just want money, then that felt a little bit better and um, even though the ransom demand they started with uh was 45 million dollars 
with a few. So that felt awful. And we kept trying to explain to them, you know, we're not container ships like out in the Indian Ocean with millions of dollars worth of inventory. We're two aid workers that no one knows about and no one cares about other than our families. So, you know, you might want to think about lowering your ask, um, especially when we were told that our organization offered $20,000 as a negotiation um, starting point. So when I heard that, I thought, wow, we really are going to be here for a while. And we lived outside the entire time. And so we were never taken to a house um, or a building. Uh, We weren't put in a cellar. Uh, We weren't put in a tent. We weren't put anywhere. We were sat 12 hours Uh, during the day under trees or laid under bushes and then for cover from the sun and from whoever might be able to see us. And then we slept out in the open field on a mat for 12 hours at night. Um, We were systematically starved. That was part of the negotiation pressure. Um, I think I lost about 40 pounds in 93 days. Um, It's not a fun way to lose weight. Mm. Um, I was surrounded by men the entire time, men who wanted to hurt me anywhere from six to 30 at a time. Everybody was heavily armed. There were explosives everywhere. The cars were full of grenades and RPGs. Um, We were moved 60 times at least. Sometimes, you know, I would finally have fallen asleep at night and then somebody would be screaming in my face to get up and get in the car and we would drive for hours and you didn't know where you were going and what they were going to do with you. And, you know, if you were running from someone or you running to somebody, um, it was just a constant mental struggle and mm-hmm. trying to keep up you and you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's coming. You don't speak the language. No one's giving you any information. You're just sitting there. Um, you're, comfort is of little or no concern to them. They only need you to be kept alive enough so that they can cash you in. So, um, you know, as a woman, you know, I get asked a lot, like, well, what'd you do about menstruation or, you know, well, I mean, the first period I had, um, came on really strong and really furious. And I, um, had to tear off strips of the dress that I was wearing to try to keep myself as clean as possible. And then I stopped having one, which was just God's grace, I think, um, due to the malnutrition and the stress. Um, But trying to like bathe yourself, and I use quotation air quotes for that because that was laughable. It was like, they'd bring a yellow jerry can of water that was laced with diesel fuel and had like algae and scum in it and then tell you to try to shower with that. And then I'm in a camp of men like trying to find a place to clean up myself somehow. It was just like really difficult and really scary. Um, you know, sleeping at night is really scary. You're out in the open, there are wild animals, like you're surrounded by men who who knows what they're gonna do to you. Um, it was, you know, I was with Paul for a lot of time and then a lot of times we weren't there. I remember a span of weeks where I didn't talk to anybody. I remember being able to try to like, they finally let us have some time together and both of our voices like didn't work. Like nothing would come out because we'd spent such a long time not using our vocal cords. Um, and, and, you know, it just, was day after day after day after day. And you, I think most people can like, if they have an end date, you know, like to work toward, then you're like, okay, well, I can survive. If I knew it was going to be 93 days, then I can do that. I can do anything. Like this is hard and it, it sucks and it's awful, but I know it's going to be over 93 days. The, the, the most torturous part of this whole scenario is that it could be 93 days. It could be 930 days. Like no one knows, there's no guarantee, there's no end in sight, there's no um, protocol to follow there. I mean, it just is. And then all you can do is try to stay alive on so many different levels until it's all over. And no one knows when that's going to be. 
there were so many unknowns for you, not knowing how long you were going to be out there, not knowing when you were going to get your next meal, not know. I mean, from the little day to day things that we probably take for granted, right. in in life to the big picture of like, how long am I going to be out here with no clothes, little to no food, no sun protection, no housing, no nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all I can do was take it in increments and, you know, say like, sometimes it was minute by minute. Sometimes all I could get through was the next minute and I'd get through that minute and I'd say, okay, I'm going to keep breathing and I'm going to get through the next minute. Other times when I was feeling like more emotionally stable and mentally strong and spiritually strong, I, I would be like, okay, I can do this for 30 more days. And then when we get to the end of that 30 days, we'll reassess how much longer I can, you know, I couldn't think past, I can't sit here and think this could be 930 days. Like, no, then, then you just give up. Then you just throw yourself into a pit of despair because what's the point? Were you keeping track of the days? Did you know how many days that you had been out there? Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't hard to keep track of. The date was difficult to keep track of. Um, I think we did a pretty good job. I think I lost track somewhere around Thanksgiving. Like I didn't, I, that was, I got to talk to my husband for two minutes that morning. Normally on a proof of life call, I talked to like a, a, like a representative for my organization. Um, but I did get to talk to him for two minutes and I didn't know that it was Thanksgiving. Um, but yeah, like I didn't have much to keep track of. So the number of days wasn't hard. Okay. And then you you talked about like times when you were struggling mentally, emotionally, but then you had other times where you felt more emotionally sound and mentally strong. How did you get the strength to think about even, you know, staying out there one more day or one more hour, one more minute, one more breath? You know, I mean, I'm a person of, um, I'm a person of faith. And so I think my spiritual journey uh, was quite an extraordinary experience for me while I was out there. Um, I like to say that I was given an incredible opportunity while I was out there to meet myself. Um, I had lost my mom the year before all of this happened very suddenly very tragically. And I was still very much in the throes of grieving her. And I had been thinking like, once I got done with this trip, when I got back, I had been thinking about taking a break from work and going on a sabbatical and, you know, where I was like oriented in in where I lived in that part of the world, it was easy for me to get to like India or, you know, places um, where I can like go sit in an ashram maybe. And, and I just like kind of had this idea that I was going to like sit somewhere cross-legged for 12 hours a day and grieve until I didn't have anything left. I don't know. I didn't get anything, any further past that idea, but something about that appealed to me to like set aside that time to work through some things um especially regarding losing my mom and I woke up one morning while I was out there I don't know how many days it was I maybe 40 or something and not super long into it but long enough to where I had felt like some sort of I built up some sort of routine I guess and I um would have tea most of the time the Somalis love their tea and, uh, in the morning. And then I would go and move my mat from the field that I had slept in and move it under a tree, wherever, whatever camp we were staying in, where I was going to sit for the next 12 hours. And I was really into yoga at the time. And I moved my mat from the field to the tree and I did a bunch of stretches and, you know, was uh, doing whatever and downward dogs and came to find myself sitting in lotus position and I leaned my back against the base of the tree that I was sitting under and I had this epiphany and it kind of went like this realization of like well didn't the Buddha reach enlightenment while he was sitting under a tree 
And didn't Jesus wander the desert for 40 days and 40 nights? And then I thought about like people like Gandhi. And then I thought about Mother Teresa, who, you know, had basically no earthly goods or comforts. And all of the people that in my cultural upbringing and and that I'd read about as inspirational, who seemed to be the closest to God, all had these desert experiences, metaphorically, and, you know, some of them literally. And I thought, well, maybe this is my chance. Like, maybe this is my time. Um, And I have this, like, weird, like, compulsion to make meaning out of everything. It's my personality. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 4, and so that's what we do. We, like, everything some sort of meaningful experience and and so I just felt like I don't want this time however long I'm going to sit out here I don't want to waste it Mm. somehow like I feel like there's something here I need to do like there's something I need to address um and so I got really like busy mentally I didn't have anything I didn't have pens I didn't have paper I didn't have and nothing. I didn't have a book. I had nothing. nothing. You weren't taking like, notes in your iPhone. No, no I, mean, I didn't even. Sometimes I read like these accounts of hostages, and they bring them books, and they they have they've written a journal, and they kept like you know. And I'm like, I had literally like sticks that I was drawing in the dirt. I had nothing. Um, but I had my wits about me, and so I got I like got organized, and I made this work plan in my head. I was like, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. Like today I'm going to, I'm going to remember, like go back to in my memory for like the earliest memories I can remember, like when I was four years old. And I'm going to remember everything from being four that I possibly can. And then tomorrow I'm going to remember everything from when I was five and six. Like, I don't know how I was, I probably wasn't exactly like accurate on all of that, but the, the hard things that had happened to me, um, in my relationship with my mother, which was very complicated. Um, I like re like went through this in this time in this space. And like, I don't know, almost felt like I was in this quantum field somehow of like reliving my childhood and having these conversations in my mind and, and, and asking for forgiveness and, and granting forgiveness and, and, uh, bearing grudges. And I like ceremony, you know, I love ceremony. So I was like digging little holes in the sand next to me and like, you know, burying grudges in the sand and um, I went through every date that I went on with my husband from beginning to end. And I, I examined every conversation that I can remember us having. And, um, you know, one by one, these memories of an incredible life really played out before me. And I have this like visualization of another version of me walking out into that desert and coming up to me on my mat and hand and, and holding her hand out and waiting for me to take it. And, and somehow she leads me out. And I think that that's what I mean when I say I finally met myself. Um, and I would never want to go through the kidnapping again, but I can say honestly, at my core, I am so grateful for that experience because I don't know who I would be today without it. And I don't know if I would have ever been able to access the time and space to be able to do that if I hadn't had all that time. Yeah. What I think is interesting is a lot of times when people go through something really traumatic and it's, you know, kind of you do the life assessment, you do the inner child work, which I think is a little bit of what you Mm -hmm. talked about. I did some of that myself. Um, And I think it's really important to really get to learn 
who you are so that you can love who you are. And I think a lot of times people, well, that's been my own experience. I should say that. But I think for you, what's so fascinating is a lot of times people are like, oh, well, I needed to have this experience to become a better person or whatever. But like you already were like the kindest, most giving, caring person. You're a teacher. You're, you know, doing this aid work all over the world in such a compassionate, you know, kind of manner. But I also know that this did change your life. So in what ways do you think this changed you? And I'm actually going to change the question a little bit. And I keep saying the word change and that's intentional because one of my favorite quotes is by a shaman and it says that change is inevitable, but transformation is by conscious choice. Mm, I love that. And I think you really transformed your life. Mm. How did you do that? I don't, I mean, I appreciate all that. I don't see myself as like someone who didn't need to change. I think like there are lots of areas in my life. I mean, my husband would probably laugh if he heard you saying that. Um, (laughs) Very selfish, very immature. Um, Ultimately, yes, I do have a good heart. And I really, my, my intentions are to be of service. I do believe that. Um, I don't always get the execution right. Um, the transformation, it is a choice, I think. And I think that for people who experience trauma, in order for us to move on and to heal and to make it, um, make it bearable, we have to choose that transformation and we have to make it mean something. Um, and so... I think I was really lost for a while in the aftermath. Um, I didn't know what it all meant. I didn't know why it happened. And I didn't really like spend time thinking about like, why did this have to happen to me? I spent a lot of time grieving why it had to change everything. Mm. Um, like losing it, those old versions of yourself. Yeah, and losing my life, really. Yeah. I yes, I got to keep my physical life, but I I left I had to leave Africa and that was never my plan. My plan was to stay there and raise my family. My plan was to continue working in, you know, various humanitarian capacities and um you know, I'm getting a little ahead of the story, but my you know, we ended up leaving and having to relocate to the U.S. a year after everything happened because my PTSD was so extreme <sighs> that I couldn't stay there anymore. Um, and I had to rebuild like everything I knew, everything I had worked for, everything I had planned had been taken away very violently. And I had to start again. Um, and so if you have to start again, you might as well make it mean something. Mm. If you have to start again, you might as well make it mean something. Beautiful quote yeah. from Jessica Buchanan. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, okay, I know you said we were getting a little bit ahead of the story, but that was such a beautiful moment. I wanted to just like mm-hmm. sit there for a moment. Um, how did you get out? Because I think that's one of the most incredible parts of your story. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as, as time moved on, I, again, don't know what day um, this all started happening, but I got a urinary tract infection and it went untreated because they didn't understand. They didn't believe me. I don't know. Um, but I wasn't getting the antibiotics that I needed. So it moved into a kidney infection and I knew I had a kidney infection cause I'd had one before and I'd been hospitalized for a week and, um, you know, untreated UTIs and kidney infections will kill you. Um, and so I had my last proof of life call on January 16th, 2012. Of course, I didn't know it was my last one, but um, I told the family communicator uh, that was carrying messages back to my organization and my family that my symptoms and expressed my extreme concern that if I didn't get out anytime soon that I was possibly going to die. And, um, you know, you have no idea that, that that's going to mean anything or, you know, do anything. Um, so 
uh, January 24th, I, you know, I had grown increasingly weaker and more ill. Um, at this point, I'm like having fevers, like in and out of fevers, hallucinating, can't walk at some points. I'm in so much pain. And um, I had dragged my mat out from the tree into the field that night and wrapped myself up in my blanket. I would lay there and the sun goes down at six o'clock in that part of the world it doesn't ever deviate and um there were two stars that would come out at the same time every night and they were big and bright and beautiful and i would i named one for my mom and so i would talk to her every night before i would go to sleep and i told her you know i need you to go and like pull some strings here i need you to go and tell god that he needs to do something because this is not like i don't i don't not sure I'm actually going to make it out of here. Like mentally I was feeling okay, but physically I, I could tell like things were not good. And um, I fell asleep and woke up a couple hours later because I was sick and I needed to, to like go to the nearby bush to be sick. And uh, I, I wake up and I, I say the word toilet and ask, you know, that's how we asked to move from our map. And there were nine guys on the ground that night and they were all passed out. Um, which was odd because there was at least one that was keeping like watch and I um, couldn't get anybody to wake up. So I picked up a small flashlight, like a small pen light. And I um, started flashing it as I made my way to the nearest bush, did what I need to do and come back. And I roll myself back up in my blanket. But as I'm doing that, I can hear something in the bushes. Like um, it's like scrub desert. And so they're like, big patches of scrub grass you know and it mm-hmm. sounded like something was walking through it like breaking the grass like a, a larger animal or something and um I'm like laying there I get up a couple of times to kind of shake my blanket and then I lay back down I settle back down and uh the night just erupts into automatic gunfire and the pirate on my left he's you know, up, he's awake now and he's got his gun and he's whisper screaming at the other guys to wake up, wake up. And, um, they're just like, it's just like a, you know, AK 47s and AR 15. I don't know, like just massive gunfire, like ammo all over the place. They're being hit. They're dropping to the ground. I'm like laying there in the middle of all of this, like dead people all around me. And I'm just like praying. I'm just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm really not going to make it out of this thing alive. I really am not going to get out of here. Because in my mind, I'm thinking it's probably like Al-Shabaab or it's, you know, Mm -hmm. like another group that has come to attack us or like take us because that was always a fear. And um, I feel someone grab my uh, feet and my shoulders and they are shaking me and um, I'm trying to like fight back. I have my hands in front of me, try to protect myself. And I hear the sound of a young American man, uh, his voice, and he knows my name. And he says, Jessica, it's okay. We're the American military. You're safe now. We're going to take you home. And he pulls the blanket away from my face and um, I can sort of make out like a lot of dark figures, but I can't quite figure out what's happening here and um one of them helps he helps me sit up and all I can say over and over again is you're American you're American <laughs> wait a second I don't understand you're American and I just do this over and over and over again and uh he says yeah we've been watching you for a long time we know how sick you've been and uh he hands me medicine and clean water and uh and one of them, you know, picks me up and carries me out of whatever this wreckage, this carnage is, and carries me over and puts me down um, in a place that's safe. And my first question is, where's Paul? Did he make it out alive? Is he okay? And um, he's there. And he leans over and he says, Jessica, do you know who these guys are? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I have no, you know, I'm like shaking head to toe. I'm in shock. And, and he says, this is SEAL Team 6. These are the guys that got Osama bin Laden. And I, I have no idea what to do with it. Like I, I have no idea. Um, and sure enough, it was SEAL Team Six, and they are the same military team that rid the world of Osama bin Laden. Um, but they also rescued a school teacher from Ohio and brought her home. I 
have tears in my eyes and a lump in my throat and I know the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, that moment, I mean, you like to me, that would feel like another life-changing moment, right? Like the moment in front of the mirror, the moment with a gun to your head, like all of like in such a short period of time. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was life giving. Yeah. And so you get out and you get, you get rescued by the seal sex team, Mm -hmm. which is incredible. What's next? Well, the next thing is a reunification with my husband and my family. And um, I'm reunited with my husband in Italy at a military base a couple of days later. And then my family about a week later in the U.S. Um, And then it it is like, okay, well, what is next? You know, my family has been inundated, barricaded in their homes by media. Um, You know, like no one can, there's nowhere to escape. Um, I find out about a month later that I'm pregnant, actually, uh, with my first son, my first child, which threw me for a major loop that was not expected at all. And I thought, oh my God, can't I just get a break here? Um, so then I basically became preoccupied with the fact that I was sick for eight months carrying a child that I, I didn't know if I was going to be a good enough mother for. And that sent me into um, horrendous post stress postpartum and PTSD. And, and I had all of the typical symptoms of nightmares and flashbacks and horrible anxiety, like horrible mm-hmm. anxiety to the point where my son had to be delivered three weeks early. Cause my doctor was like, you're such a hot mess. We have to get him out of you. And, and then horrible anxiety when he was on the outside to the point where we had to leave Kenya and, and, and come back to the States. And, um, you know, I, I just always kind of picture myself like here with this baby and this Swedish husband and 10 suitcases and that's my life. And my dad picks us up at the Dulles airport and takes us home and it's like, okay, well, what do we do now? Um, it has been, it's been wild and it's been really hard and it has been a fight pretty much every day. Uh, to hold on and to commit to reconnecting with my purpose and um, building a life of meaning and staying married and, and becoming a mother twice over and trying to be the best mom I can be to my little kids because they didn't ask for any of this. Um, and then on top of that, reinvent myself and my career. So, you know, when you ask me about that and then I say all that out loud, I'm like, dear God, no wonder I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Girl, you've got a lot going on. (laughs) It's been a lot, but it's been, it's taken a lot of time. And I think that if I could say one thing I'm proud of in all of this for myself is that I don't think I've rushed anything. I Mm. have taken my sweet time to heal um, as much as I can. Um and to get really clear on what I want um, to reconnect with my intuition. Cause I think for a while I was afraid that it was broken because I so boldly um, ignored her. And um, yeah, I, I think I, it's to create intention and space. And I've been lucky that I've been able to do that. You know, I didn't, a lot of former hostages, you know, get dropped back into their lives and there has been financial destitution and their families have fallen apart while they've been gone. Um, Maybe they have um, life altering injuries or illnesses as a result. I'd say by and by, I am the luckiest girl alive. Well, I think a lot of it is your mindset you know, for you specifically, and I'm not saying that in a comparative way, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that compared to other hostages, they had a bad mindset. What I'm saying is I think that you have an amazing, powerful, strong mindset. And you, you mentioned your dad and I talk about my dad all the time because he passed away and he Mm -hmm. was my guy, but Mm -hmm. he had these things that I call dadisms and Mm -hmm. like these, you know, I think they're intended to be like motivational sayings, but they're like a 
dad joke, like poorly timed, but well-intentioned, but he always, and this came to mind and I use this one all the time, but, um, it came to mind when you were talking, uh, about like the coming back and, you know, I didn't plan on this happening, but he always would say, you're the architect of your own destiny. Mm-hmm. And it was his most common one and his most annoying one. But I use it all the time now because I think that it really means like we can't always control what happens, mm-hmm. but we can control how we respond to it. Yes. Yeah. And, and I have I have a I'm a big, huge, huge supporter of that um train of thought because it's what saved me. Yeah. Like I really am like, oh my gosh, the reason I was thinking, I'm like, you embody that. Like mm-hmm. you embody that, like the way that you responded to things and like your mindset about it and how you have transformed, not to say that it's been easy, right? Like, I mean, you are mm-hmm. very clear about that. You're very humble, um, but you have had a lot of intentional ways that you've responded to what happened to you. Mm-hmm. I think I learned the difference between an option and a choice while I was out there. Um, and I think that we like confuse those two for being the same and they're not. Um, options are fixed and we often can't do anything about them. And we may have one or two options or we may have lots of options. It just depends on, you know, the time and space and who we are and whatnot. But within the limited options that we have, I do believe that we always have a choice back to your dadism, right? Um, and I learned that lesson in a really harsh and extreme way, but I come back to that over and over again, that I have a choice in terms of how I'm going to respond. Um, I have a choice in terms, I mean, I, and I like deal with all the regular stuff that everybody deals with every day of like not feeling worthy and not feeling good enough, not feeling successful enough, feeling like I screwed up with my kids, like you know, not feeling I'm middle-aged and not feeling skinny and you know, all of it, like, right. But then at the end of the day, like, it's my choice as to whether or not I'm going to let that railroad me or hold me back or keep me from connecting. Um, I may not have a lot of options uh, when it comes to something, but I do have a choice. And so that is not a lesson I want to repeat. So I'm going to learn it. Yeah. I want to go back to, I said, I was going to circle back to this about how you, um, abandoned yourself, ignored your intuition. Mm. How do you handle that now? Mm. So I'm really like fixated on trying to figure out the difference between an intrusive thought and my intuition. You know, like yesterday I went to the gym and I left my wallet in the car and it had my passport in it and I'm getting ready to travel internationally in a couple of weeks. And so I couldn't like remember if I had locked the car and it's like in a busy part of town where there's like a lot of, you know, passers by and all of this. And so the whole time I was on the machine, I was like, should I go? And like, is it my intuition or is it an intrusive thought? Is it my intuition or is it my intrusive thought? Um, so I think, Ultimately, I got off the machine and went and made sure my car was locked. And of course it was. So I think it was an intrusive thought. I would have done the same thing though. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's not hurting anybody. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I think I'm still figuring that out. I think my intuition now shows up in terms, I would like rephrase it and call it alignment. Mm. Um, and I, I think I lean into it more with my business and the work that I do and um, the people that I work with. Um clients, you know, maybe that I take on. Um, I always know from the very first conversation, if this is going to be a good thing or if it's not. And every single time I move forward, even though I know we are not aligned, it Mm -hmm. is going to fall apart and it always does, or, you know, something is going to happen. And so I feel like I'm pretty, I've gotten pretty skilled at figuring that out in terms of business um, I've gotten pretty good at like figuring that out when it comes to people and, and friendships and developing, um, you know, connections. Um, but I'm still, I've still got lots of room for growth. So an expansion. So I'm, I like I'm, that. I'm in it. Okay. I like it. Well, okay. So what are you up to these days? Ooh, um, a little less than I have been, um, but still pretty busy. Um, so I speak 
professionally. I wrote my husband and I co-authored a book, Impossible Odds, that came out in 2013. And so we've been, I have been, you know, telling that story for a very long time. Um, my second book came out in January, actually, of this year, and it's an anthology. It's um, called Deserts to Mountain Tops, Our Collective Journey to Reclaiming Our Voice. So it's 25 women's stories of how they've reclaimed their voice, since that is such a poignant and um, profound experience for me in terms of reclaiming myself and my intuition. Um, and so and I also have a publishing imprint. So um, I publish other women's memoir manifestos. So that is a, a story where someone has been through something, now they know something, and now they want to teach us something. And um, yeah, that's that's what I do. Wonderful. I will put all of your links um, in your website and everything so people can find you. Where's the best place for people to connect with you, learn more about what you do if they have a story that they want to share and work with you and your publishing company? Um, I hang out on Instagram a lot, Jessica C. Buchanan, and then you can always connect with me uh, through my websites, jessbuchanan.com, desertstomountaintops.com, or soulspeakpress.com. Perfect. I'll put all those in the show notes. Thanks. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, Jessica, this was incredible. Thank you for taking the time to be here today, share your story, and thank you for being such an inspiration. It's my pleasure. Wow. What an inspiration Jessica Buchanan is. I love her story. And yes, it is a big one. And we know I talk all the time about, you know, my story might not be the biggest, but it was to me because it happened in my life and yours is to you because it happened in your life. And I love that Jessica acknowledges and kind of provides validation knowing that her story is so unique and you don't have to have gone through something like that because so few people are going to go through such an extravagant, extreme experience, but that your story does matter too. And just a gem of a person. She is humble and inspiring. And I'm so grateful that she came here to share her story because it, she really is an inspiration. And I love that she has taken her attitude and taken her experience and turned it into, you know, continuing to serve people in a different way than she was before. So if you loved this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating or a review and share it with a friend. And until next time, Gem, shine bright and let's get growing.